is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Today we are continuing our Toronto International Film Festival-themed episodes with another series of spectacular interviews. Today's focus is on film composers. I speak with three industry professionals to talk about their work and careers. In order, you'll be hearing from David Wingo, composer for the new Adam Driver thriller, The Report, Joel P. West, composer for the Michael B. Jordan biopic, Just Mercy, and lastly, I speak with Trevor Gorekis, composer of the Nicole Kidman and Ansel Elgort film, The Goldfinch. Hi, this is David Wingo. I was the composer on the film The Report, and you are listening to Consciousness. After 9-11, everyone was scared. Scared it might happen again. It was my second day of grad school. Next day, I changed all my classes to national security. Morning, Dan. Morning, Senator. Have you seen the story today in the New York Times? Evidently, the CIA destroyed tapes of interrogations of Al-Qaeda detainees. I want to find out what was on the tapes and why they were destroyed. No paper. Paper is a way of getting people. I am chatting with composer David Wingo, whose work has been heard in such films like Take Shelter, Loving, George Washington, and his latest film, The Report, which plays at the Toronto International Film Festival, is directed by Scott Z. Burns and stars Adam Driver and Annette Benning about a Senate staffer investigating post-9-11 interrogation practices. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, David. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. That is great to hear. I am always curious about the process of composing a film. When you're approached to work on a film like The Report, how do these conversations start? Is it just the director describing the mood, or is he going for, or is there more to that? Um, it's usually a little more than that, but sometimes it's, it can be fairly open and vague in that way. Uh, the Report was certainly... Um, different than any other film I'd ever come on in terms of the process because of the fact that I was coming on very late in the game um, they'd already I was only six weeks until next like it was very very late to be getting started so um, they had Scott and Greg O'Brien the editor had done a really thorough blueprint of the score basically uh, I came in to watch the film with them in every scene where there was music, they had written up this whole thing and like tied like which scene, you know, because you, I end up usually developing themes for various characters or for like, oh, this is the process theme, this is the anxiety theme, etc., uh, etc. Et and they had, that's just kind of organically happens. But because um, we only had six weeks to do the score, they had gone ahead and done all that and like had a whole whole write up of like each scene and what scene that tied with, like these scenes all should tie together and what that scene was trying to accomplish, what the music needed to help it accomplish. So it was really thorough and really incredibly helpful, um, given that there was such little time. Uh, so that it really does differ from film to film and project to project. That was the first time I've had uh, uh, basically a blueprint drawn out for me that was, and they were really like, it seemed like they were very, like, well, we hope this is okay, we hope we're not giving you too many, I kept having to tell them, like, this is, 
incredible. This could happen every time. <laughs> it makes my job that much easier to have, you know, it's a blank canvas. To have the canvas not nearly as blank obviously helps me. That, that's definitely interesting to hear. So you you almost prefer it when you have a bit more of a of a guide to, to follow. I like, I, I prefer as much direction as possible. Because at the end of the day, it's still, it's not stifling my creativity to have, to have a bunch of, as many variables painted uh, paint out for me as possible. I still get to be, at the end of the day, it's still me making something out of nothing. So it's still very creative no matter how, how much I'm being. Uh, I suppose some people might feel a little boxed in by having a, so many things, um, so many various aspects of the music paint, uh, directed. But I love it. I, I think it makes it even more interesting in a lot of ways to have some various things that you're trying to know you're trying to have some very specific things you're trying to accomplish with the music tie together with another scene it just makes it more of a a little bit more of an intellectual process i suppose i absolutely understand now you were saying that you came onto this film a bit later than usual do you normally start composing before you even see a cut or is it something where you start to get clips or parts of the film and that's what you go off that is a good question because with David Green, David Gordon Green, who did George Washington that you mentioned, and Jeff Nichols, who did Take Shelter and Loving, and amongst others, um, those are the two directors that I work with consistently. David Gordon, George Washington was 20 years ago at this point. I've worked with David, uh, I think, eight times since. Because of my ongoing relationship with them, they're two of my best friends. I see them all the time. I'm hearing about the projects that they're working on well before they ever get started I'm hearing about them in their infancy stages so by the time there it actually comes to be I've read the script we've had lunches talking about it when they're shooting I'm out visiting set I'm going ahead and coming up with music at that point um, when I have time just going ahead and trying to find the sound of the movie that's the luxury of having these ongoing consistent relationships um, but when it's not with them I'm just getting hired on by someone a project once they're usually already deep into the editing process so um, the report was later than most but for instance uh, the feature Brigsby Bear that I did a couple years ago that I got brought on to that um, when they were still shooting I interviewed with them but I didn't start working on it until they already had a cut so Again, and that wasn't a whole lot of time. I started working on that in November, and it premiered at Sundance. So, it's it's a it's the luxury I have with David and Jeff to have all the time in the world to kind of flesh it out. Uh, normally, the normal way that most composers work is to do, yes, come on when they already have a pretty uh, solid cut together, and you start working from that. Well, uh, as a fan of of both. Um green and nickels i think the relationship is is really much deeper because you can really feel the 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 mood and atmospheric tension that a lot of their their films really go for well thank you <laughs> um i'd like to talk a bit about maybe your your inspiration for the report what sort of influences do you either listen to is it is it other music is it other compositions how do you how do you get inspired for score pretty specific types of influence. One was, so it's, Steven Soderbergh is producing it, and 
the Cliff Martinez scores for Steven Soderbergh's films for Traffic, especially Solaris, but it's an entirely different kind of score. But specifically Traffic and Contagion, and, and Scott V. Burns wrote Contagion. This film feels like it, it goes hand in hand with those movies, the way just the style of the process oriented, but thrill like a thrillery thing, even though it's mostly just people in rooms talking. Um, and so, Traffic and Slayer and Contagious uh, Course I really love. So, it just made sense to go with that style, this kind of uh, minimal electronic, like analog synth, but also a lot of atmospheric beds. And that just, yeah, that way of using an electronic score. Um, so, that was certainly made sense to me as far as the sound of it, as far as the feel of it. We talked a lot about like the 70s paranoia films that David Shire scored a lot of, All the President's Men, and um, Three Days of the Condor, I don't think David Shire did that. But uh, in that, they don't, those kind of movies don't, Dog the Afternoon, or Dog the Afternoon, All the President's Men is one of my favorite movies, and is one of my favorite scores. And it's very similar to that movie in the way that it's structured, and again, feeling like a thriller and trying to make people trying to make the audience not hopefully not think about the fact that they really are just watching people in rooms talking for the most part that I feel like when I think back about watching all the presidents man like I don't think to myself like that's just a lot of people talking like it's mm-hmm. there is like a real there's the sense of intrigue and growing corruption and tension and the danger in their lives from investigating and it's kind of hovering over it is what I think about and the music really plays to that and so I didn't go back and listen I know that score pretty well but I didn't go back and listen I just kind of it was more like a the emotional memory of that music and what that did that I kind of tried to channel a little bit interesting do you do you often find yourself referencing film scores when you are composing work or is it totally dependent on the film itself? I don't like to go back and listen to them because I start getting like, so for instance, Jeff Nichols film midnight special, Jeff kept referencing John Carpenter and, um, not Halloween per se, one that most people know, but actually, uh, Starman Jeff talked about a lot of not as known John Carpenter film, but just overall John Carpenter vibe mixed with a very cinematic big, big modern contemporary cinematic sci-fi score, but with the John Carpenter thing. I know John Carpenter's scores, but I don't listen to them. I appreciate them quite a bit. I love them, but I don't listen to them a lot just on my own. I Most film music I, I don't listen to a lot of film scores like regularly just on there honestly um, but I didn't go back when Jeff said that I made a point of not going back and listening to John Carpenter scores it was more about what I just said about all the presidents men like my memory of it what it, I'm trying to more like I, I know how that I know how these scores feel to me I can bring up that feeling and I'm, that's more what I'm trying to reference. I feel like if I go back and start listening to them, I start getting in my own head about how similar I am sounding or how, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to play that game. <laughs> I don't go, I, I intentionally don't go back and listen 
but uh, I know uh, I know them internally <laughs> enough to know like the, I, what what that what that means to me. When Jeff says a John Carpenter sound, what that means to me, all the presence man, what that means to me is what is kind of using my own personal relationship with those scores i suppose that's fascinating I, th I think it's very easy you know you hear the words john carpenter you know what that that feeling is the foreboding it's the dread it's a whole bunch of things exactly. but it's definitely still much more of a, a personal connection to the characters as opposed to traditional epic horror sci-fi fantasy sort of things that's interesting um you have worked in both comedies and in dramas. Does the genre of a film affect the types of instruments you use or how you work? Yes. Um, I think the types of comedies I'm working on, not as much as it might usually. Um, for Barry, not at all. I'm, I don't score Barry like a comedy. I score it like my instructions have always been not... Not ever, not ever uh, score the comedy parts of it. The comedy is presented without commentary from the music. The music scores the drama and the melancholy. So not, and that, not in the least. Um, and then the other comedies I've worked on have been like mel very melancholy comedies. Brigsby Bear and the TV series Kidding. Because Jim Carrey's on it's a Showtime show. Those are both, the music has a whimsy to it but it's also melancholy uh, but I do think the instrumentation for those scores are, are uh, instru probably instructed by the comedy aspects there's accordion and mellotron and ukulele and so especially uh, xylophone vibes I think a lot of the instrumentation that you're more like modern like indie comedy Certainly, was probably informed by the informed by that, but the music itself, the composition, is usually has some some melancholy to it. It's not necessarily comedy music. I've never really done a straight up comedy score. Yes, looking at your filmography, that that is true. There hasn't been a traditional broad comedy that you've done. So. Nah. That's interesting. Now, I feel like you're already doing my segues for me, talking about both Barry and Kidding. Um, this is your first time working in, in television, as far as I'm aware. Do you see any differences between doing a feature-length film and doing a longer-running series? Certainly. And again, though, not maybe as much as if I was going... If I was working on a CBS hour-long the drama that would be an entirely different thing because the music I do think you're expected to abide by a little bit more of a traditional thing and because the schedule is really you know so many more episodes uh, I was always like kind of prepping myself like all right once I get in TV it's going to be a whole different world well my first show is Barry only eight episodes it's only so it's like a very long movie at the end of the day or 30 minutes is four hours versus like had yeah, an hour-long show on CBS would be 23 hours um, only four hours and it, HBO and they leave they leave their creators to do what they trust them to do what they hired them for and they don't necessarily 
come in with studio notes for me. I never got a single studio note. If I did, it was filtered through Bill and Alec, and I never knew it was coming from the studio. Um, and so it felt like working up very, felt so much like working on indie film. Like the kind of music I was making, the kind of notes I was getting from them, like it was not about, it was, accessibility was never mentioned. You know, um, it was always about finding this vision that Bill had had of this character and this uh, kind of tone that he was trying to set. So I don't think my TV experience has been necessarily uh, reflective of most people's. (laughs) And then Kidding, it was the same. Kidding, I was mostly working with um, Michelle Gondry in the first season, and who had also never was from the film world and Jim Carrey's from film. So these are much more, these are not the typical kind of process. I think, I don't think we should have a typical uh, television process, but yes, still the differences just in like the reoccurring themes from that you're building throughout the series is really a different way to work. It was interesting to me once where, um, like we get to say episode six of either of those shows and I'm, they're camping with some music from episode two and I'm saying okay and I'm trying to do something new for that that like brings in a few like in film usually like I don't think it's very often that like a piece of music is just repeated verbatim later in the film that was used earlier I'll take that theme and I'll do something different with it but I learned in both these shows like quite often they wanted to just use it exactly how it was used just take it as is and it started making sense to me as the more I worked I was like okay it ties you know these are not and this isn't uh, streaming either of course these are times that everyone airs week to week you're making it with the idea I know eventually most people end up watching it binging it but all of a sudden you're making it with the idea of watching it week to week and it makes sense to tie an episode a month later if you want to really tie it to something that happens earlier in the se- in the season just if you have that same piece of score that's one more thing that helps it kind of tie together I don't think it's as necessary to keep doing variations I guess so I, I have learned to be a little to, to I guess uh, change my expectations in that regard because for me I'm just like oh I want to do something new here and it doesn't always make sense. The simple thing is just to use that same piece of music sometimes. Very interesting. Um, you were actually nominated for your first Emmy for your work on Barry this year. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, that was very surprising. Um, <laughs> that, given that it was my first TV show, I kind of hit pay dirt, um, won the lottery of that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't even I didn't even know they were announcing the Emmys that morning. They they don't have a separate category. Emmys don't have a separate category for 30-minute and hour-long shows, like for music, like they do for most. Like for editing, it's best editing for 30 minutes versus an hour. I think it's it's the same with writing, of course. And um, music doesn't have that. So 30-minute shows are rarely nominated for score because your, your budgets aren't as big and you're going up against the huge things like House of Cards and like uh, the other the other nominees in my category, House of Cards, this is uh, Game of Thrones, and Handmaid's Tale. So 
it's a lot of <laughs> a lot of competition that uh, I steady but consider that it might denominate. But very, very people love dairy, so I guess at the end of the day, I mean, it's not being. I don't feel like I'm being falsely modest to say like. I think people just want to honor that show. People, but it is coming from my own peers. It is coming from other composers. So that that part of it is really feels extremely gratifying to know that it is other people in my in my field, other music makers that that voted for that. So that was that was very humbling and very cool. Oh, that's nice to hear. <laughs> did your did your phone blow up after the nominations came out? thing I was out walking my dog you know, I didn't take my phone with me and like I said I didn't even know they were announcing any nominees that morning and I got back and my first I just saw I had like you know 12 text notifications like what the hell just happened in the last 30 <laughs> minutes that's what happened <laughs> very confusing at first well, circling back to the report, uh, the movie is being distributed by Amazon Studios, which means most people will end up watching it at home instead of on a big screen. Now, I know more and more people have good home theater systems these days, but do you feel that your work might not be heard in a movie theater setting by a large portion of the audience? Is that a bit of a problem? I wouldn't call it a problem. It's just the world we're living in now. Um, I mean, I still... I'm still such a theater goer, personally. I, I try to see everything in the theater. If there's an, an older movie that I love, because living in LA and then before LA, Austin, it always is. Austin has a lot of repertory cinema as well. Like I was always lucky to have a lot of opportunities to see films in the theater that I love to see. So for me, yes, I always want. That's just a, my own personal thing. I feel like I'm becoming an anachronistic eventually in that way because we're slowly moving away from that, from theater being the way people see stuff. So I accept that, but I would love for everyone to see everything I do in the theater. Um, but that said, no, I don't think anything's being lost necessarily. I, it's mixed. It's it's mixed for the theater, of course, but I also feel like if you're making. There's a, there are some things that I feel like are really are lost if you don't see them in the theater. I feel like Gaspar Noe's movies only work in the theater. I think at home, it's all <laughs> kind of lost. But uh, for the most part, no, I don't feel like anything I've ever worked on has been like it's not seen in the theater. It's That's very interesting. Um, I guess lastly, speaking of awards the report looks like to be an awards contender are you bracing yourself for potentially doing a lot more publicity in the next few months we'll see um yeah i i, I hope it is i think it deserves to be um yeah it's i feel i, I was really happy with what the, the reviews coming out of sunday i really liked that they were tying it back to these types of movies that i mentioned earlier all the president's men and um three is the condor just kind of recognizing like this is serious i don't feel like there's a lot of serious adult cinema these days obviously um not as much as there once was and so i'm hoping that 
people are kind of find that refreshing to see to see that in the, to see that in the film again. I think people are very accepting of that with documentaries now. I it, it, I just had this conversation the other night that as documentaries have become much more popular just in the mainstream, I think that really is because films aren't they're giving people what films are not uh, for the most part. They're just like, oh, these are the these are serious things that make us think. And that used to be what you went to the movies for, and now not as much so. So people turn to documentaries for that. So I'm, I'm hoping it is a, a hunger that people have and they don't realize that they have, and that this movie satisfies that. It's also just a very good movie. It's an incredible, <laughs> incredible cast, incredible writing, incredible performances all around. So I think it's it's one it's one of the better things I've worked on for sure. Well, I, for one, am very excited to check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, David. The report is screening at TIFF and will be released on Amazon Prime on November 29th. Last night I found this. He's detaining number 24. Have you guys used this thing before? No. We watched your video. They waterboarded him 183 times. 11, Everything they got from him was either a lie or something they already had. If it works, why do you need to do it 183 times? Maybe when the report comes out, people will finally see that. Hi, this is Joel P. West. I'm the composer for Just Mercy, and you're listening to Contra Zim. Tell me everything that happened. The first time I visited death row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me. From a neighborhood just like ours. Could have been me, mama. But what you're doing is gonna make a lot of people upset. You always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most. Your life is still meaningful. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Joel P. West, composer of such films like Short Term 12, Grandma, The Glass Castle, and his latest movie, Just Mercy, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton that stars Michael B. Jordan, Brie Larson, and Jamie Foxx, about the true story of a civil rights lawyer working to help exonerate a death row inmate in Alabama. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, great. Uh, Just Mercy is having its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, is this the first time that you're seeing it on a big screen? Um, yeah, like this. We, we did a couple of test screenings, but, uh, you know, first time I've seen the finished product with just a real audience, and uh, it was a, a total honor and uh, joy to kind of be here and see people uh, go through this kind of tough but uh, very true and um, and kind of beautiful experience. Would you say that when you're able to to sit in with a with a live crowd, is that sort of like the the paramount of being able to really share your work to its full extent? Yeah, in a way, it feels like. Uh, it's the moment where you kind of let go of it and it, it, it transfers from being something that you were making into something that just exists and you kind of become an audience member and just go through the experience with them, uh, which is pretty uh, kind of surreal. Um, put a lot of time into this one. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, this, uh, this film, I hope people enjoy watching it or, or have a great cinematic experience, but uh, it's, it's really a vehicle to, highlight the work of Brian Stevenson who everybody who worked on the film is um, a total fan of and just would be happy to do anything to help uh, what he's doing helping incarcerated people and um, trying to change the narrative on racial inequality and uh, wealth inequality and 
in North America. So uh, it was really, really exciting to kind of um, finally see just a, a, an audience just sort of uh, sit in the story and, um, and go through that journey with them because it's, it's an emotional one. Interesting. Now, speaking of Stevenson, when you're working on a film that's so emotionally heavy and based on reality, does that add pressure to ensuring that you are doing right by the people that the film is based on? I mean, I would say so. I think I think we all kind of felt that pressure. Uh, it's it's not a, it's not that often that um, a story about people who uh, are coming from a place of poverty and being treated. Um, with no dignity and uh you know these are stories horrific stories that happen in the shadows and it's very rare uh to have a chance to have these kind of actors and like a big platform to tell the story and so i think we all um kind of showed up just just wanting to make sure that we were doing everything to be true to the story and and to be um crafting it in a way that uh you know doesn't blow this chance to um bring some of the stuff into the consciousness um, I think when when I personally um, discovered the work that Brian's doing and and just the realities of uh, that have led to Brian finding ways to sort of start fixing things, um, you just want to do anything you can to uh, to help. And so this just felt like a, a chance to um, try and do it justice and 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 see if um, see if we could crack a way to uh, you know bring his work into a broader audience and, and just bring some consciousness. So, so yeah, there was a bit of pressure, but also just kind of a freedom in, in um, most of the team. There's not a lot of ego on this one. Everybody just kind of showed up being like, how can I help um, make this the right thing? Uh, nobody's really looking for a spotlight on this one, I would say. That's really nice to hear. Um, you've worked on all four of director Destin Daniel Cretton's films. What do you think makes your styles work so well together? You know, I think it's uh, it's less about um, about aesthetic choices and more of, of an ethos. Uh, Dustin and I are old friends and have worked on a lot of things together and also been just through a lot of life together. And so um, I think we see the world in a similar way. Um, I don't know if he'd say this about me, but he's definitely challenged and inspired the way I see the world. And the, um, He just has a, a crazy uh, radar for um, people who are in the shadows or uh, the vulnerable or the, the unheard. And so uh, um, I've learned a ton from him just as a person and, and, and kind of have a trust in uh, he's a, he's a, he's a filmmaker because he wants to bring human stories that, that help, uh, help in real ways. And so I think that we're connected on just the, the intent of what we're, why we're sort of in this world. And uh, I think there's some trust because of that. And so um yeah, it's been cool kind of learning learning and growing together creatively, um, which kind of just feels like an echo of learning and growing together just as, as people and sort of growing up and understanding how the world works and where we fit into it, you know. Well, the fact that he keeps coming back to you, I feel like he would have to say similar things about you. Yeah, he, yeah probably. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> not for me to say, but, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, uh, there's definitely a, a deep bond that... Um, that I think, uh, yeah, just going through going through some some big highs and big lows in life together. Um, I think it really there's a real comfort in working creatively on this stuff because it, it just kind of feels like uh, we don't have to. We just have a shorthand. I think um, 
but yeah, I'm very really grateful for that relationship, both uh, just as a friend and, and creatively. It's um, something that doesn't come around that often, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How early were you involved in this project? Was this something that Destin was talking to you, right as he was attached to it, or did you come on a little bit later? I came on really early. Um, I had read the book, and um, if, if you've read Brian's book, Just Mercy, or you've just kind of been uh, caught up on his work, your first reaction is just like, what can I do? Um, and so the chance to work uh, on this and contribute to the story, um, I sort of just, as soon as it seemed like it was going to happen, I sort of started the work. Um, Starting with going out to Montgomery to Brian's museums, he just opened uh, the Legacy Museum and the um, National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which um, are kind of the first, uh, first like official museums and memorials that just really document, uh, particularly in the South, what it's been like for people of color since slavery and that um, the ways that it's that racial inequality has kind of morphed. Um, and I've just spent, yeah, I spent a good year just kind of living in in educating myself on his work and you know what we what this film is trying to accomplish and also kind of just studying brian's musical background because he's a musician himself and music is a, is a huge part of his his work and his movement as big inspiration to the things he does so kind of trying to live in the music um specifically uh moments in african-american music history that kind of speak to him and speak to um what he and his organization are doing so um yeah i started uh in a nutshell i started uh as soon as they started writing a script i was kind of already just in touch with everybody trying to start getting ideas on the table and looking for musicians and um it's been it's been a long journey and something i'm really grateful i got to go on now is anything that you were speaking of brian's influences himself did any of those musical influences directly uh, influence you as far as songs, artists, different people like that go? Yeah, you know, I think um, ultimately this uh, this is a tough movie to watch. It's, uh, it's a heavy drama that's, that is, uh, doesn't shy away from some, from some really hard truths. And so ultimately we wanted the music to be just really beautiful and also be really dignifying for um, people who are stuck in the criminal justice system in an unfair way um, and their families and uh, you know the point of the movie is just to kind of let, walk you through the experience of what this feels like if it happens to you or somebody in your family um, and so the focus was kind of on just making things as big and beautiful as we could even though it's a kind of a dark uh, tone throughout the movie um, and then I just spent a lot of time listening to uh, music that is important to Brian and finding ways to sort of sneak little hints of it in it's not really um it's it's not totally that music but but there's little hints and then ultimately we um we put together a little jazz hip-hop combo that uh played underneath the strings um kareem riggins lynette williams thomas drayton and justice west um some just killer players that uh we kind of um took us a few months to find exactly the right people who kind of had a voice that we could turn loose and let them put their fingerprints on it so um that was part of it too is just finding people who uh really know and, and live and breathe that music and um know those traditions and kind of letting them take it where it needed to go so it was a really fun exciting um process that was kind of 
get all hands on deck and, and uh, solve it together, you know? Wow, that's interesting. On a, on a larger scale, I find your work is very atmospheric at times. Where do you get your inspiration from, and how do you translate that into your scores? That's a good question. It's um, I never quite know. It's, it's always kind of mysterious. I'm a, I'm a pretty visual person, and I, so I think... Uh, for me, score music's always made sense uh, as soon as I found it, just because I'm always trying to figure out how to make something sound the way that my brain feels, you know, and, and kind of capture the way that I'm experiencing the world. And uh, I think uh, I just, early on, I, I don't have a formal music education, but I just, when I found music like um, Bjork and Sigurós, uh, things like that, kind of early on when I was like a teenager, uh, it just made me feel something that um, I was like, I've felt this before, but I've never heard it translate musically. And so I think it's just this big mystery of always trying to figure out, messing around with sounds and with chords and with different instruments to try and sort of just capture uh, these feelings that we have that are a little bigger than words. Um, and so I, I never really quite know. It's, it's always just a, a sort of, exploration in the dark of, of um, not really knowing where you're going and just kind of tinkering until you until you find it um, which is what I love it's a little scary because every time I'm not really sure how it's gonna work or what I'm gonna find or if I'm gonna find it in time but um, yeah it's always just kind of the, the search it's sort of what, what keeps me coming back Wow how exactly do you do you write your music? Does it start on a piano, or do you do you tinker around on different instruments first, or does it change from film to film? It's definitely different from film to film. I um, I I do write some on the piano, but it's uh, it's always just kind of this this weird fumbling around in the dark, messing out different instruments, or um, pulling up string samples on the computer and just writing directly for string. Um, it's it's very mysterious kind of just throwing stuff at the wall until uh until you get that spark and sort of turn your brain off and then wake up a couple hours later and you've made a bunch of music just sort of uh you know that that like kind of deep creative process where you just kind of lock in um it's always different but it's kind of um i usually just start making things and then just trying to be open and sort of make myself a vehicle for wherever the, wherever the idea is want to go so it's uh yeah it's always different interesting um can we possibly expect to hear you working on a future marvel movie since cretin was tapped to direct shang chi and the legend of the ten rings we'll see it's a it's like a whole different beast and uh i think they're still figuring it out so we'll, we'll have to see on that one <laughs> not sure yet i figured i had to ask because you you never know <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see, hopefully, but, um, I, you know, they're, they've kind of got their whole own system over there, so they're, they're, I think they're starting to figure it out. We'll see. I totally understand. Um, looking over your filmography, you've now worked twice on food-centric shows, Chef's Table and Street Food. Do you find any similarities between the craft of making food and music as an act of consumption? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think I honestly love, I'm not a great cook, but I love cooking. It feels really similar to sitting down and um, picking up an instrument to me. Um, and uh, I think for me, 
everything that I do creatively has to do with just connecting with other people and getting into other people's worlds and, and um, finding those connecting points. And so I love Chef's Table so much for that reason. I think it's uh, it would be, you know, kind of this vehicle to learn, learn about other things about just how other people see the world and what their families are like and what their day-to-day is like. And so uh, I do uh, I do love working on those shows just because it sort of opens up my mind to different cultures and uh and yeah it's kind of, it does feel very very connected um you get really hungry working on those shows though uh, <laughs> <to> like <laughs> watch my weight <laughs> now speaking of chef's table uh the episode that you worked on was for christina martinez and that episode i find that it seems like there's quite a bit of similarities between her story and the story in Just Mercy. Is this something that you're specifically drawn to, or has it just sort of been a bit of a coincidence? Uh, maybe it's a little bit of coincidence, but when I got uh, asked to do that story, it felt the same as Just Mercy, where um, it was kind of more than a job, and I was willing to spend as much time as it took to get get the story right because like I was saying before it's just it's just not a common thing to get to have a big platform to tell um, Christina's story is just the same it's, um, it's a million people's story it's something that we you hear about in the news but you don't get the intimate um, understanding of what that really feels like uh, as a person trying to sort out um, crossing borders and um, dealing with you know there's a lot to unpack there, but yeah, so that's, it is, um, to me that, that was like, it's probably the most human story that Chef Table's done. I was totally honored to, um, be trusted with it and to try and, um, find a way to, you know, just help Christina's truth get out there and also to kind of capture her joy and her resilience, um, which is very, it's very similar to Just Mercy of just, and Brian Stevenson's work, like the amount of hope and grace, uh, that, that man has despite how much uh ugliness he works in every day trying to um help people out is it's really beautiful and and um and inspiring it's uh it's just it's like kind of a model that um i want to stick close to people like that that's great to hear other than when destin reaches out to you because i'm sure when he calls the answer is yes how do you decide on what projects to work on it's so random, you know, um, it's a weird line of work because, um, it's sort of, it's sort of like dating every time. It's, uh, it's not just about your qualifications or, um, if you, you know, sort of your experience or anything, it's, you kind of, uh, have to be available at the same time that somebody needs music that you happen to be a good fit for. And it's just this very, like, it's this very mysterious thing. Um, and Honestly, I don't think about it too much. It, it always kind of just falls in place uh, without much effort because I feel like typically if I'm going out too hard trying to find, trying to get on something or um, if it's taking a long time to figure out if I'm going to work on something, it usually isn't right. So uh, for me, it, it, it always comes back to the connection with people making um, the, the film or show. Um, if I connect with a, a director or a producer just on a personal level and feel like we have an ethos that we, we're trying to make the same sort of thing to put into the world, then that's usually the deciding factor. And it it uh, tends to be pretty easy like that. And similar to dating, it's just kind of like if it clicks, 
then it clicks. And if it doesn't, it just doesn't, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. Now, this is a bit of a esoteric question, so so feel free to answer it how you wish. But when people watch movies, do you want them to be able to walk out and specifically comment on the score, be able to pinpoint it, or do you hope it's just a, a larger part of the whole? I, I would say pretty much any every time, unless it's like a music-oriented film, um, I just want people to watch the film. Um, you know, music has its place, but... Uh, it's it's never I can't think of one good good film that I love where one person's role uh, is just standing out and they're just taking over the whole time you know it's really about the balance so um, every story is different um, I always just think about a film as uh, what what would I want to watch and I don't necessarily need to hear a musician proving themselves to me throughout a whole movie. I just want to watch the movie, and so I'm always trying to think of it as an audience member of just what's best for the story. And uh, is this, um, and which sometimes having the music be really exciting and out front is best for the story. Sometimes it's not. So um, that's kind of part of the joy of, of this work is it's, it's sort of always uh, this moving target of trying to figure out what, what the right recipe is. That makes sense. Uh, Just Mercy premieres at TIFF and comes out wide on Christmas Day. Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. You don't know what you into down here in Alabama when you're guilty from the moment you're born. God. Mr. McMillan. We done here. Mr. McMillan, please. I'm Trevor Garakis, and you're listening to ContraZoom. In Amsterdam, I dreamt I saw my mother again. Same beautiful pale blue eyes. Today, I have film composer Trevor Gorekis joining me. Trevor has scored the music for such films like Bloodline and Wetlands. His latest film, The Goldfinch, is directed by John Crowley and stars Ansel Elgort and Nicole Kidman, about a young boy whose parents die in a tragic attack, and it eventually leads him into a world of art forgery. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Uh, the Goldfinch, your new movie, is based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. Does that sort of title add extra weight when you know you're working on it? Um, yeah, I think, I guess so. The, uh, I mean, the, the novel itself has its own, uh, you know, intensity and body to its, its own work, but certainly, you know, being renowned critically, um, is, a is it a certain, um, you know, important, but also there's a huge, uh, fan base, um, in a, in terms of just people that just know and love the story so much um, and know every single bit about it and all the characters and everything that they do in their lives. So that's been an interesting process of, you know, um, after having finished the film, just seeing kind of what people are talking about, what their expectations are, and knowing after the movie has been done what they're, you know, uh, kind of seeing what they might be thinking 
when they see it. You know, of course, we hope that they like it, uh, but we can't predict what's going to happen. <laughs> but we'll do the best we can. That's good to hear. I imagine as yeah. someone whose life is so involved in music, when you read a novel, do you hear sounds associated with it when you when you know you're going to work on composing a score, or does that come afterwards? I mean, in the case of this score, I you know I didn't have a lot of time to get involved with reading the book before I started working on it because of the, the timing of it. But I was definitely reading it while I was composing. So in, in, in a way, it was. You know, I was, uh, it became a parallel experience. Um, I wasn't like ahead of the game by having read the book first and then was composing it. So, you know, certain elements or certain parts of the score, uh, you know, specifically in Las Vegas, um, I read a lot in that section, which are huge sections and important parts of the story and they inform um, a lot of the music and I think in you know certainly her writing style which is very descriptive and detailed to me led uh, a sense of uh, of uh, journey and detail uh, well journey and epicness to the what we needed to have I felt and uh, um, you know because it's a story of a boy becomes a man being just kind of pulled through this his entire life um this kind of these awful events and him having to deal with it and him not dealing with it at the same time and uh it's sort of how she does it in this great way of all, all of this vivid detail so i was trying to kind of mimic some of that with like uh instrumentation and electronics and um, just having lots of vividness uh, 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 in those uh, elements. Interesting. Now, obviously, films always span a passage of time, but when you're dealing with a film that specifically is spanning multiple years, like The Goldfinch does, do you approach uh, this work as trying to show clear differences in the eras when you're making your music? Uh, in this one, yeah, because I think that it has these really clear marks in his life, uh, in the main character's life, too. You know? So, um, you know, John was really, uh, you know, purposeful, and so was Roger Deacon about how things looked, uh, as a cinematographer, um, and, you know, what's different about this movie than the book is that it's non-linear, so there are times where we're jumping back and forth. Um, so that creates a whole other kind of musical experience. And, um, you know, so I had to kind of have a concept of what uh, the points of entry are. So there's like New York, there's Las Vegas, there's the return to New York, and then there's Amsterdam. Uh, that's the linear progression, but the non-linear version of you know various jumping points where you kind of like go back and then come back. You know what I mean? So you're kind of going in uh, uh, various orders, but you're, you know it's we're all going forward, but there's a little bit of a, a background, a little bit of a loop back, an occasional occasional moments. Very interesting. Uh, 
you talked about working with John, the director. When you're composing a film, do you share your work while it's in process? Or do you sort of wait till the very end when it's closer to being complete to get some sort of feedback and direction from them? Yeah, I mean, uh, the process is definitely... I would share a cue when I'm, you know, pretty positive about what this is going to sound like, you know, in a demo format. I mean, it wouldn't be like a lot of live instruments on it just yet. I mean, all the electronics would be filled out. All of the orchestra, you know, might have like some sample instruments and maybe a violin or two, but it wouldn't be what it's going to be, which is going to be full strings, full brass, with the whole thing. Of course, because you can't do that because the cue could just be cut and to <laughs> be like, I don't like this. So, <laughs> and that's totally fine. And he wasn't like that at all. That it was, you know, we were very open about ideas and, you know, made sure we had time to talk about things and, and discuss where I was coming from and what I was putting in. And also, if things weren't right, like how to fix them or, you know, not literally. It wasn't like, I don't like the string line. It was more like, um, you know, what was working and the point of the most important elements are focusing on the, what's happening narratively and with the characters' emotions and those kinds of things, which can be a little amorphous and hard to score, you know, if you're just talking like that. But it actually, he had a good sense of language of, with that, which I think we connected well with uh being able to get on the same page. When you're speaking with your, your directors, do you prefer them to have a bit more of a understanding of musical terms to be able to communicate to you? Or do you just normally uh, talk in more abstract terminology? I mean, it, you know, it can be, there's a positive and negative for each situation. I mean, certainly someone who knows what they what they want specifically, and they are like, I love violin and I hate piano. But you know, I think most people will be able to say that. But if they're able to say, I want solo violin in this section, that helps. You know, because then you know, don't put a, a trumpet there. But um, if it's if it becomes a lot more complicated, and then they a director starts to kind of pick apart something that you've written and you're just kind of like, I don't know if we're, on, we're getting anywhere with these comments, you know, because they're so particular and we're not talking about bigger picture. Then you can see how getting more specific about music details can not provide a great solution. So in that way, being a little bit broader and focusing more on, well, what is the music doing? how the interacting with the, the picture, with the, how I'm, the audience is reacting, or you know, how at least the director is reacting, or you know what I mean? Those kinds of things um, can be more uh, informative. And then I can react to that using my own experience as a composer uh, and with working with other directors, seeing other films, that kind of thing. Wow. So, you know... You kind of take it as for each one, but and then it's a, a game of strategy where you're like, which is the, <laughs> which direction am I turning for which 
director and you know it kind of like informs uh your plan of action wow that's really interesting to hear um now i would be remiss to not talk about your history of of working under philip glass are you able to talk a bit about what your working relationship was like yeah so i mean he's got a small operation i mean it was literally just me and him (laughs) and uh i worked with him I went to uh, Yale School of Music for two years, my master's and degree in uh, music composition, and uh, it's just like a classical composition thing. And I entered there for between my two years, and then I got hired there to be his music assistant. And it's really just one-on-one sitting with him, and he writes everything by hand, so I had to like, transcribe what he wrote to. Um, you know, music software, or to demo it out into, uh, you know, um, MIDI instruments so that a director could hear it, uh, you know, before committing to the final product kind of thing. And we would, you know, make he would make changes. Um, I would do, you know, some additional arrangements. For the most part, it was just sort of like watching and learning from him. Um, and that was hugely informative. Uh, and especially, I was always asking him questions about what he was doing when he was my age. <laughs> I was like, so what were you, you know, because during, I guess during the 70s, when he was closer to my age, and he was, it was a very different time in New York. So they were all like performing in lost spaces. They were, he was able to, drive a taxi and uh, do some furniture lifting uh, a couple days a week and get by, which is not really the case anymore in New York. You really have to have like a full-time job to like to like pay rent and survive. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, certainly the, that story, those, those stories are definitely very interesting. Um, but I, I learned about just being very resourceful and self-sufficient and um, uh, and being in charge of your own um, destiny uh, from him. So uh, I've kind of taken that knowledge once I grew up enough to go on my own and <laughs> do my own thing. What sort of... Um... What sort of similarities or differences would you say in in your styles of work? Um, I, you know, I've always been a fan of his, even from high school. So it was kind of a crazy job to land in the first place because you're like, wait, I'm going to work with like an idol of mine, one on one for years, and um, so I already had an aesthetic that was, uh, you know, inspired by his music. Um, Harmonically, I've always been uh, intrigued by, you know, uh, his harmonic language, his melodic language. I mean, there are things in the Goldfinch that you could probably hear repetitive things that are, you know, somewhat reminiscent of that. Um, You know, I think that's always going to be part of my DNA, and I don't know if that's necessarily working with him as much as it is growing up 
and forming my own musical mind and he, him being an influence um, more than anything, honestly, because like the time that I worked there, um, you know, I was already kind of thinking musically on, on my own my own thoughts, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you're uh, an adult by then. But you're, certainly I'm learning about what it is to be a functioning, living composer. And that's what I learned a lot um, by working for him. Interesting. Now, I know that scoring is not just a solo job, but after you finish writing, how do you go about finding the right crew to help bring your work to life? Yeah, so in this case, I mean, I usually do the whole deal. I usually do the whole thing, including orchestrations, and, you know, I'll get, like, help to do copying and stuff. I mean, sometimes not even that. Um Harkening back to my silly glass days of just sitting in the office and copying scores until 4 a.m. myself. But um, uh, because of the time constraint was so crazy, uh, I think I had like a month and a half to finish the score once I was finally hired in October. Um, and that was about 45 to 50 minutes of music. Um, uh, so we were like, well, we definitely need to get their orchestrator, so Stu Jacobs, the music supervisor, knows David Campbell really well, um, and he's an incredible arranger and orchestrator, and he and I worked together on just pulling out, you know, what I had already arranged, which is pretty clear, like, string parts and brass and winds and everything, but it's just sort of getting it down the page. And then sort of expanding on that, so I would kind of like say like I have all this electronic stuff, and be cool if this sound was also kind of in the orchestra. You try that out. All right, I got to go work on the ending cue. <laughs> so that was sort of like he was my my uh, my buddy in terms of uh, getting you know things down out of my session to the page, and then collaborating on like some additional sounds. And then um, they had their whole copying system. This is the first time I've ever worked on like a Hollywood film. It's the first time I've ever didn't have my, uh, you know, didn't have my whole my hand on every single process. So uh, it was fun and also kind of like uh, it was just different. I was like, wow, like the copying is being done by someone else. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you know, and then of course when all of this was done mixing with that everything I was like alright back to reality because I just gotta go back to my studio (laughs) focus on you know the usual films are independent films and you don't get budget to score for 50 piece orchestra and have David Campbell be your orchestrator or anything like that's not a common experience so you usually just stick to your your normal experience Interesting. Now, in the past, you've worked on, on Arabic and Portuguese films. Does does working with international crews change the way you approach a job? Um, you know, it's no. I mean, I mean, well, all the people I worked with uh, are very influenced by the same films and composers as, as everyone else. So, like, we were. 
like like collaborators I work with a lot. Um, Wagner, uh, he uh, a Brazilian filmmaker. Um, I met him when I was working for Philip Glass, so you know he likes a lot of his music, and then he and I connected, and uh, so we kind of continue that relationship. And he had his own interest in his music and other films. So we were already in the world of those kinds of films. So we weren't necessarily like, I wasn't necessarily had to uh, think about a different kind of style or anything like that. I was kind of already doing my thing with him and he just thought of me to do the same. Um, and you know, the films are very different. They're, they're more about spirituality and um, spiritualism. Uh, uh, but the aesthetics are somewhat similar. There's like, uh, there is that kind of uh, uh, melancholy that permeates a lot of his films that uh, I think uh, sometimes I try or uh, try to achieve in my music that he. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are any language barriers in music? Um, no, I, I mean, I think it's, we talk in the same terms, you know, like it's, with themes and moods and uh, getting the right tones of the characters, and, you know, it really, it's amazing how similar they are, all the same concepts that we talk about with directors who speak, uh, well, they all speak English that I work with, but uh, directors who are American or are British and the directors who are, um, uh, you know, Brazilian or uh, uh, Arabic. So. Interesting. Uh, earlier this year, you actually put out your first album, which is described as electroacoustic. How does writing for yourself compare to writing for other people? Yeah, that, that album was like an interesting one because it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, it came out later, but I had written it um, maybe a little bit before Goldfinch, but then I just kept changing a lot of it. It has a, some similarities to the Goldfinch in terms of its um, uh, pairing of electronic instruments and acoustic instruments, so that's where that term comes from, electroacoustic. But you know, so as you know, one of the people who worked on it kind of mentioned that it was kind of like a proto goldfinch concept. Um, and in that case, so the ensemble that I wrote it for, called the Nouveau Classical Project, um, uh, they uh, they premiered it at. At, um, uh, at a venue in New York, and then we recorded it, and then uh, I added like additional electronics and like cut it up even more and made it even shorter. <laughs> it just got so small and like from a 50 minute piece to like 30 minutes now or something. Um, but the point was that uh, I was really focused on just tying these two things together in kind of a 
in a different way. I wanted the electronics that were from kind of a naturally um, production side of things, like um, popular production things. Like uh, I was using like my Profit 08 synth and uh, 808 kicks, and but not in like in a, that typical way at all. There's no beats, right? It's more like the sonics are there. Um, there's like vocal samples, chopped up vocal samples that occur, and, but in a completely abstract classical music way in which they're proposed in as uh, modern classical instruments, if that makes sense. So they're kind of partners in that aesthetic of you know, purely concert music that's talking to uh, its own compositional creation rather than uh, playing as a partner with a film or playing as a partner with uh, any other kind of medium. So it's really focused on uh, the aesthetics or the sound of what's happening and also um, just the composition itself um, and how it's written and the notes. Interesting. Um, can you talk about your work with Found Objects, a company that you're a partner in? Yeah. So I started Found Objects with uh, another, another composer, Jay Wadley, about, I guess, maybe 12 years ago when we were at Yale. Um, we kind of were like, you know, when I was interning at the Phillips last, I was kind of like, well, you know, when we graduate, we really need to figure out how we're going to make a living um, and do this if we want to be like full-time composers. And, you know, he was doing some apprenticeship work with Rufus Wainwright. And like I said, I was working for Philip Glass. So we kind of, we had this kind of loose partnership company thing. I wasn't sure what it was going to be focused on exactly. But we just, Slowly got more opportunities for it, opportunities in advertising, whether it be opportunities in arranging for other artists, um, doing like string arrangements or or something like that. So we kind of like, it was just the fact that we were a, a partnership um, and we'd be in the game together to help each other grow and help this company grow. And you know, it's a, it's a collective in that we work with other people and uh, other composers, but Jay and I are like the executive creative directors. And it's, you know, over the years, by, and, you know, at this point, we've grown it to the point that we have um, five employees and uh, a studio in the Flatiron District in New York, which is like 26 in Broadway. And it's a fully functioning, like, you know, proper company, although it's funny, though, because we were just composers and did not business people at all, <laughs> so we're, you know, now we're kind of, like, having to do both things, which is, like, it's fun and it keeps you grounded, for sure, because you have to worry about, you know, health insurance and 401k <laughs> and stuff at the same time while you're, you know, figuring out the, uh, the instrumentation for this project and calling uh, what the orchestration rates will be in Prague and you know it's like uh, it's fun it's, it's being able to do 
a lot of different things and work with a lot of different people. And um, I think we are, you know, building it and still growing. And, but we're building found objects to be um, a really uh, creative hub um, in the uh, advertising and new media space. And Jay and I, as composers, are building our own careers. Um, uh, you know, on top of that, as uh, you know, film composers and uh, artists to ourselves. Oh, that's really exciting. Um, yeah. The Goldfinch is getting its world premiere at TIFF. Do you like the process of sharing a movie for the first time in a festival setting? I'm sure at this scale it's it's newer for you, but I, I wonder if you could still talk on that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely cool. I mean, it's uh, it's a nice way for everyone to come together, especially in an industry setting, because there's so many talented people. Uh, from other films that are here, from people who are here to see other films and your film. Um, I always like, that's the first time I've been to TIFF, but I've been to Sundance um, uh, twice, once. Uh, but I really enjoyed being able just to be around um, just really talented people in the industry who are really connected to your levels work and they know the same people and we're all just you know ultimately a small industry um and so it's like you kind of run into people and they're like oh yeah i worked with that person who knows that person who knows that person and so it becomes a very friendly environment and then you just get to meet people doing good work and see people's work flourishing and you know hopefully they feel the same way about what you're doing so it's always good to catch up and see what's going on you know wow. so that's what's exciting about uh, festivals like TIFF because they definitely support that environment and um, I think that's really cool well that's great to hear uh, the Goldfinch opens wide on September 13th thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today Trevor yeah absolutely thanks for having me you're the boy, aren't you? The boy whose mother was killed. Well, I hope you enjoyed these interviews. Make sure you check out The Report, Just Mercy, and The Goldfinch, and let me know what you think of their scores. Will any of them be Oscar-nominated? As always, thanks to Eric and Kevin Smale for producing the theme music, and Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ContraZoomPod, or you can email me, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.